You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry, passions and challenges that they're facing. I'm Abby Stokes. I help businesses connect with tech talent and I'm your host for today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Werner van Gent, Aaron Nalianen and Yashi Singh to discuss making microservices work at scale. Before we get into the topic in a bit more detail, we'll work our way around the room with some introductions. So, Werner, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, so my name is Werner von Kent. I am originally from South Africa, but has been in Sweden for the last three years and three months at this point in time. Uh, I currently work at Volvo Cars as an engineering manager in their fleet management and fulfillment cluster, where we are doing quite a few interesting new things. And have to plug, we've just launched our new fully electric EX90. Definitely check that out. That's a really, really cool car. A lot of innovation and more software than car almost at this point in time. I will be charging you for that product placement. (laughs) 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 And if anyone else wants to plug anything, go for it. Um, Thank you, Werner. Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself next? Yeah, so uh, yeah, my name is Arun and I am originally from India, have been living in Sweden for the past 10 years and I currently work for Electrolux, actually been with Electrolux for the last 10 years and the entire career uh, at Electrolux while while I have been in Sweden and I currently work as a head of engineering. I recently took this role um, for a department that is called Consumer and Customer Journeys um globally and will sort of focus on on delivering in consumer facing digital solutions across channels so only channels um yeah and if i have to place a product i recommend aeg from which is a which is a brand within electrolux family <laughs> check them out we have cool connected appliances there <laughs> brilliant that's uh, another hundred pounds i've charged you <laughs> you can get a free repair hubby <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and last but not least, Yagshi. Yeah, since everybody's doing an ad, maybe I should do that as well, but <laughs> I will leave it this time. Uh, no, Jagjit Singh here. I'm based in uh, Oslo, uh, Norway, born and brought up here. Uh, been in the tech industry for almost uh, six and five years, uh, six and a half years, uh, working currently in Sopras area. Um, as a cloud uh, uh, manager, uh, so we are helping clients with their cloud native architectures, uh, modernizing their legacy application portfolios to something modern in the cloud and working with various DevOps platforms to establish them and basically help them to be more productive and see how we can kind of uh, um, uh, establish the platform to, to to make them more productive and have them make change happen faster. So I've been working with both public and private sector clients here in uh, the Torix, um and work with kind of different kind of industries, uh, everything from uh, oil and gas to health uh, to retail, uh, yeah, and so on. Yeah, that's about me. Lovely. Now that we've gotten to know you all a bit better, we'll move on to the topic in focus. So you've all prepared a question on making microservices workers at scale. And as usual, we'll work our way around the room where you can ask each of your questions and give your thoughts. So the first is you, Werner, and you ask, how have you found it easier to scale microservices? And what technologies have worked best for you to scale microservices when and if needed? So tell us a bit more about your question. Cool. So obviously, 
microservices were a buzz was a buzzword quite a while ago. So uh, then the industry started moving more towards towards bringing everything up in microservices, nanoservices, AWS standard started with lambdas, all of those type of uh, type of things. And uh, as as things have matured, obviously there's a whole bunch of different ways to do these things. So although there's there's some best practices, there are are always those outliers, right? Where where you need to where you need to do things a little bit differently. But we're talking about more or less a, a rule here around how how best to do these things. So my question is like what have you found works best? I mean restful a restful restful behind load balances or Kafka or message brokers or things like that. So that's basically the question is like what have you found works best or, or what makes it easier for you to scale? Hmm. I mean uh, I can start with like telling how I see it. I think uh, the the biggest challenge like when scaling microservices is the limitation of data. Like often data is uh, centralized or even like before microservices when you had um, monolithic applications uh, and still you have microservices which kind of owns a lot of data. Uh, but when the data is kind of centralized, then it's uh, uh, like kind of very difficult to create a lot of services around and the centralized service to fetch out the data. It's possible, but then again, you have a new dependencies which you want to avoid. So uh, one of the things we are looking at when uh, helping our clients is how can we uh, also decentralize the data? How can we uh, make sure that the data is not like uh, strictly uh, concentrated at uh, one service? Uh, so Kafka and the message brokers and the, the technologies you mentioned there, um, have been very important for us. Uh, Kafka is very interesting with event sourcing because then uh, the data is decentralized in a way that you don't need to make API calls to kind of a centralized service all the time to get that data. Every service have their own kind of uh, stream of data or reality image of the data. They can work with it without doing the API calls back to a centralized service. So that's that, that, that's kind of uh, what what we kind of uh, look at when helping clients and when we are helping with starting the microservices journey, how to um, how to kind of decentralize the data. That also think, yeah. kind of makes it a little bit interesting if you, if you talk about data in that way. I mean, talking about a microservice owning its own own data, and when you start scaling that, it's only, only a matter of time when when kind of the data source. Let's let's for argument say 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 a MySQL database starts becoming a bottleneck. I mean, mm. there's a there's a point where you have to start scaling those as well, where you're going to go to multi-master or master-slave replication type of things in order to, to supply those things. So while Kafka and Kafka Connect is like a great solution to, to replicate that data around, I mean, mm. it depends on, on how consistent you need that data. Yeah. yeah, and there's also a question, uh, like basically uh, talking about technology is one thing, like when the microservice uh, grows, uh, again, like the, there, there will be a microservice which kind of, uh, uh, if, if you haven't like segregated uh, very well and thought, okay, what kinds of separation of concerns should be there, what should the microservice uh, own when it comes to data and operations, then it can lead to a, a situation where you keep building on top of that microservice. It adds more and more and more data. Then it that becomes a bottleneck. Uh, 
And then you need to think, okay, maybe that microservice should be chunked or split in two different uh, services. Uh, and then you can like think about how what kind of data storage should be there. Hmm. I think, I mean, just to add maybe from another dimension, right? So in our, my experience, I've seen database become bottlenecks, especially the NoSQL or the SQL databases, right? And, and I think over the last two years, we've seen a lot of, uh, use cases where there is a need for NoSQL data architecture patterns. So things like MongoDB and, and, and then you move away from this relational databases. It gives you the flexibility to store data um, and in, in another layer that is more, uh, gives you the ability to, to, to get a high availability and quicker response than getting into this traditional database layers, right? I think that combination has worked quite well, uh, especially when you have real time use cases and and if you have to have millions of calls uh, from from sing multiple channels and going into the backend systems right um, so yeah i think that's combined with the kafka or redis cache and and i think no sql i think that combination has worked well i would say for scalability uh, needs and it not just facilitates an individual microservice, but I think it provides sort of an underlying uh, setup for multiple uh, journeys and therefore multiple services uh, can rely upon this pattern overall. So, yeah, and I, I mean, it's always, always one of those things where, where it depends on how, how you're scaling these things as well. I mean, sometimes just spinning up another instance is easy, maybe not as easy. I mean, the other thing is like, how do you how do you see these things best working when scaling? I mean, recently years things like like Kubernetes has made this a lot a lot easier. Back where we had bare metal and maybe VMs running with with Docker when when Kubernetes was still kind of in its infancy, it was a little bit less easy to to get these things into a rotation, I suppose. So I mean, going from that point of view, how do you find best to kind of spin up those and load balance across them. Uh, I know we talked about Kafka and message brokers and uh, I mean, is that something, I mean, if, we, if we're looking at, the, at a microservice, normally most of those are restful. I mean, how, how do you see the, those things being spun up and, and handled correctly? I mean, do you go pull out Kubernetes and cloud infrastructure or, I mean, there are clients that can't go cloud, right? Um, financial industry sometimes can't go cloud. So how would you do something in that kind of scenario? I mean, I think we have options nowadays, right? So we go from Kubernetes to serverless functions to, to hosting these services on internal data centers. But I think, uh, I think the combination uh, from a scalability point of view, I would say is more focused on the deployments and, and facilitation through infrastructure as a code, because that provides the speed, but also the, the ability for us to scale uh, across. Um, and, and, and I think we have seen, let's say the traffic coming in, uh, which are predictable, where we were able to scale and we have unpredictable amount of uh, unpredictability as well, quite often, which, which has scaled quite well. And I think that unpredictability was sort of, um, um, uh, addressed through infrastructure as a code in combination with with decentralized not that everything is set up on kubernetes but also as serverless and we had a combination of services running also on-prem and and we sort of 
made the choice what sits in on-prem, what sits with serverless functions, what sits with Kubernetes, and and therefore I think one of the reasons, of course, is cost, right? So then you have the ability to control cost when you decentralize a bit, depending on the use cases. And you have a lot of, I guess, uh, uh, options today. Uh, Kubernetes can also be used uh, um, on-prem or kind of in a private data center as well. Uh, but I, I really believe in the uh, hybrid scenario as well, like when you were saying serverless uh, for some kind of workloads and Kubernetes for some of them. Uh, Probably you, uh, speaking from a, a, a Azure point of view, you have the app service, which is kind of uh, also uh, very famous out there. Uh, but it, it it really depends because now um, the, the Kubernetes also requires some efforts on the infrastructure uh, level, and uh, we we are seeing that a lot of the cloud, many of the cloud providers, they are now um, abstracting away that very infrastructure part of Kubernetes and making services on top of that, which basically used to cover Kubernetes uh, behind the scenes, but uh, it's easier for uh, for for uh, for developers to or, or uh, the infrastructure department to kind of uh, deal with the, a service which has abstracted or kind of fit behind uh, the, the details. So I think the, the, the future kind of uh, lies in uh, um what kind of uh, scalability you have like with the kubernetes you kind of have this uh, uh, option of uh, uh, you can uh, have this readiness and liveness probe and you can kind of uh, check like when the service is going down and uh, basically from that you can create rules uh, uh, you should uh, do then when 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 the service is not listening or you should have that, that those many instances of the service given that traffic is coming in so I don't think I haven't seen uh, other kind of services providing the the same kind of set of rules you can define, uh, which you can define in Kubernetes. Like in serverless, you have this automatic behavior, but in Kubernetes, you have more manual control of how you want to scale scale the instances. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also a situation of the advent of of things like Docker and so have become have become really great for for definitely engineers and repeatability as well. That you know you can you have absolute repeatability, and when you're spinning up extra extra pods or anything like that, at least you know that's always going to be the same. So I think yeah. it's also a situation like dinosaurs like me that were still scaling up scaling up on bare metal is is becoming less and less of a of of a of a how should we say an act of thought about how you scale these things. It's been it's becoming easier to scale. Um, yeah. I mean. I I don't love serverless at this point in time. I, I've seen problems with it, but it, it is a situation of it's a technology that that really has some uh, has some legs. I think in the future. Yeah, and coming to the scaling as well, that also depends on uh, we have seen the cases where we have a variety of clients that uh, the application is uh, built in a way the in a, in a way that it's not stateless. Uh, mm. Uh, so, uh, so scaling application like that can be very difficult uh, because uh, it's like expected that the user is always going to the same instance. And uh, if you have a Kubernetes which is creating multiple instances and the user is suddenly uh, uh, redirected to a different instance, uh, then they lose their data or something happen. It's also a kind of a architecture question as well. Like, how are you designing your services? Are they able to scale or not? Yeah, but I mean, there's ways around that, right? I mean, you've got Redis for st shared state storage and and things like that. But yeah, definitely, it, it's something that needs to be taken into account 
from the beginning because otherwise yeah. i mean if you were if you're if you're storing station in a memcast engine that's not something that can easily be shared well you can but i mean it it's highly dependent on, on those type of uh, types of um setups as well Absolutely. Okay, lovely. We will head into the second question, and it is yours, Yagjeet. How can a common platform and architecture across autonomous teams contribute to efficient scaling of microservices? So tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah, I think uh, like in any microservices journey, like you have to uh, establish a macro architecture. You have the micro architecture and then the macro architecture. We can basically say that there should be a platform team enforcing a standard of policies, all the different autonomous teams so microservices should follow uh, or a steering committee, whatever you call it, but you have kind of a platform which is deciding uh, some attributes of the of the architecture and how we build build the services, how we deploy the services, uh, how they are hosted, how they are monitored, uh, basically authentication and authorization. And it can be uh, basically also networking and DNS and all that very very heavy infrastructure part which developers normally want to uh, avoid and they just want to create kind of the service and deploy it through a self-service layer. So I'm talking about uh, how have you, um, like, how have you defined uh, platforms uh, and uh, architectures in order to kind of create a self-service layers for developers? And do you have any learnings you want to share of how that journey has been when, um, when taking into consideration the different kind of autonomous teams and how they work with the platform team? I think I think it's just a good timing because we just launched in, in our case and at developer portal and and on Azure, right? So we're using Azure API management portal. And I think after two years into the journey with microservices and working through the implementation, every single development team gets involved in the in the selection of technology, the choice of architecture patterns, and and the backend systems, the subsystems and all the details, right? I think we have see, come out of the pain now uh, with more uh, the platform engineering driving essentially the choice of technologies, sort of providing rather the standards, the tools, and 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 the processes. But over these first two years, we have had we have been running, for instance, Azure alongside uh, like uh, other big platforms as well, right? And, and and now we sort of consolidating things from because we've been running, for example, Arrow, Azure, and and big platforms, but we sort of consolidated everything towards towards Azure. And and I think one of the learnings we have is that this standardization takes away the time to market and, and also provides a lot of little details like version control. You lose version control when you involve too many implementation people in the implementation or too many teams in, in, in the life cycle of the developments, right? Um, so I think this we I think we where we made a mistake, which I think many companies do as well, is that we established the platform engineering function quite mm -hmm. later in the journey. Uh, but they have a crucial role because we had to refactor and replatform quite a lot after the first two years because we have made a lot of architecture depth or we have either Sort of build solutions without, let's say, the macro picture, and 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 that ends up eating a lot of your future years, right? Because then you constantly have a backlog of depths that you have to work through, 
and so on. I, I think that was why, you know, like we have just launched the developer portal and the developer portal is not just facilitating uh, or publishing the APIs and the API documentation, but it acts as a place where you can actually gather uh, gaps in the data or the fields or the values that are missing, uh, the attributes that are missing in the APIs. So we could, we facilitate sort of uh, a requirement gathering process with Swagger Hub and, and sort of allow developers to contribute uh, through through these platforms, right? So I, I think it, it, it brings that space uh, uh, for not only the internal developers or community of consumers, but also external developers, because a lot of our APIs are public uh, APIs. And it's it's interesting. And how have you seen, uh, because when you're talking about API management, it's kind of a platform for integration, I would say as well, like uh, one thing is like you're externally exposing your APIs for collaboration. So a lot of new innovation can happen because now your, your data is available and uh, in a manner that you don't need to have those integration projects anymore like it used to be. It's more like uh, it will still be some kind of cooperation in, in the integration, but it's, it's more streamlined and documented. But how, how have you seen um, have you seen any uh, difference in innovation and the time to market after uh, uh, kind of having an API management or are we still to see it yet? I think we are still quite early in the process, okay. but at least the expectation is that the time to market or it allows people to experiment on the existing APIs rather than like, you know, start working on parallel implementations rather than waiting for the microservices or the APIs to be fully ready, right? So we sort of work through version control now. So we sort of clearly specify also the level of maturity our APIs are and like, okay, this is a private beta version. This is like um, beta version, but public. Mm -hmm. And and there is some, we set some expectations on the, on the consumer side as well uh, in terms of how ready we feel these individual services are. Uh, but clearly the expectation is rather high quality and mm -hmm. uh, and and time to market is is the driver why we went in this direction. And of course, we are now checking APG OPG as well as an option. Uh, but regardless of the choice of platform for the portal, I think it's it's about what we want to show in, in the portal. We want to show like usage analytics. We want to show failure rates, and mm -hmm. we want to be vulnerable equally to the to the uh, external teams and, and other teams. So we can correct and self autocorrect and everybody contributes to the to the failures or the low usage or high usage and we rationalize together um, and so on so yeah. Mm -hmm. I know it's 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 very interesting because uh, the the version control is kind of one thing. I the versioning is one thing I see the benefit in and technology like API management or another kind of a platform where you can expose your APIs that you can decide. Okay, I uh, we are currently having this public version which uh, which can be used externally and internally as well. But then you can do innovation on the side and kind of have a release candidate or kind of a beta version which can be used by. Um, uh, some new other services which are kind of testing something new. So I think I think there are a lot of features in the API management, both in the inbound policies and outbound policies, which kind of standardize and streamline how you want to respond to a request and how do you want to deal with a request coming in. And security is another aspect you can enforce with a standardized platform like that. So so that's kind of. Coming back to the one of the capability, like a platform team, 
should have, uh, in my opinion, that they should kind of decide this integration platform. But we talked about Kafka earlier as well and message brokers as well. Uh, how do you see that compared to API management? Because we had, I remember we had a discussion internally in, in an organization I work for uh, where we discussed, uh, should we have API management for um, for API communication or kind of transferring data, or should we have more event sourcing Kafka where we kind of take all the data image and the microservice have it, so they don't need to do REST calls, API calls at all? I mean, from my point, I mean, the, the one thing that, that I've really found with APIs is always when scaling those things out, uh, especially on bare metal, when you're sca scaling those things up, there's always something that has to be restarted in, or, in order to bring that other other item into, into scope, where as with message brokering, that hasn't been an issue, issue. As long as it's listening to the queue, it can grab, retain that message and, and post that out. So definitely that's one of the things that, that that I've seen and that that we're doing now is like using those message brokers in order to allow us to scale. And it just means a lot less downtime. It means a lot less configuration. It, it means we can scale anything for, within a couple of minutes. It's just how long does it take uh, take for it to spin up and it can handle those, those requests. And previously uh, in one of my previous, previous, uh, my previous roles, uh, we were very API based and mm. it was always an issue. It was always a Nginx load balancer that needed to be reconfigured in order to scale. So that means configurations, stopping, starting, all of those things, or you're looking at uh, what was it? There was a specific load balance as well. So there's always a situation of extra configs that need to be done before the scaling actually kicks mm -hmm. into place. And I mean, having a common thing like uh, like that, so when your teams are de developing and the platform team says, okay, cool, here are the queues, listen to those, here you post your responses, those type of things. I think that helps. It also helps that, that uh, the devs know exactly kind of, yeah, this is where the data so is sourced from, this is where it goes back to, and th those, type of, uh, those type of things. Obviously, we start entering into a situation where requests and responses need to be uh, need to be aligned with maybe item potency keys or anything like that but i mean it it has felt like that is an, an easier way to scale and i mean you can always abstract those things away so that you, you can use it on an api or on a queue as well so i mean that that's a, another level that you can, you can always go into but just for me the, it having message brokers being uh, the primary scale point is just that has saved a lot of effort. Yeah, I mean, it's also like with Metro's message brokers are managed services, then like how many messages can you process and what's kind of the size and quantity. And it's kind of easier to scale that, uh, I, I would I would think, rather than having, because I subscribe to the thought that you have, let's say you have an API, which is uh, overly consumed because it's kind of, let's say it's representative core system, having all the core data, and already there are a lot of API connections towards that API. Uh, then you, when you kind of plug more microservices in, more microservices start developed, they also consume data from, from the same API. So there will always be a, a concern of uh, load balancing, uh, traffic management. Uh, there, should, there will always be a concern of architecture in that particular microservice, like uh, how are the SQL squares, how are 
uh, how are the transactions happening? Because it's always expecting a lot of uh, a big load of traffic. But if we shift that towards the messaging or that kind of architecture, then uh, it's kind of a fire and forget architecture from the service. It will just push a message to a queue or a, the topic or whatever, and then it knows that there are subscribers on the other end. And if there are a lot of messages in that message uh, centralized message queue or topic or message broker, whatever we call it, then we know that if that is a managed service in the cloud, then it's kind of just click ops or with uh, infrastructure as code as well that you can say, okay, I want to go to a different plan, which allows processing more messages, uh, if, if that's a concern. So the scaling is a bit easier. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of message brokers. I, I really am. Um, and I, I really feel that API, APIs, as they are, are great for external parties, but internal systems communicating on APIs start becoming more and more of a headache, especially since we're moving to, to kind of smaller teams and and saying okay well this team needs to take care of those uh, those problems the problem always comes in like sometimes i mean the golden rule is right as soon as you're saying this microservice needs to do this and this then you're talking about two microservices mm. but i mean that's not always the case right we always want to add something more in because it makes sense and yeah that's also i mean that's a whole nother discussion, I think, about, about that. But, I mean, that makes it more difficult to scale because some of those aspects might not scale as well, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, I, I think having a common, a common goal on how these things communicate, a common, a common kind of language and a common way to do this, not only kind of assists devs, but it also assists platform teams in troubleshooting, right? I mean... Uh, Eventually, they're not going to be the ones that are, that are working to the code. But when when there's an incident, the platform teams need to know what's going on because they are kind of first line. And having those things as standard, I think, makes makes a huge amount of sense. Yeah, and it's also like uh, reducing uh, complexity. Like when you have this platform function, like what we are doing for a um, uh, client now is that we are establishing establishing this platform function, which will take over this. Uh, integration platform capability. Today, we have a lot of API calls going in all kinds of directions. There are some messaging as well. There are some Kafka as well. Uh, so that's that's kind of a major challenge. Okay, uh, should you just use one kind of technology for uh, exchanging data? Should there be, can there be multiple? Uh, so that's kind of a different challenge. Like, should you have API management uh, for internal API communication as well? At the same time, you should have like messaging as well maybe some Kafka, or should you stick to one one platform for exchanging data? I think I think we will have to to sort of uh, have, you know, like both, depending on the use cases, you choose between going with Kafka or, or any message broker. We, we have used and tried both concurrently, right? So we've used RabbitMQ and as well as uh, Kafka and and Kafka is used mostly when you have heavy you know heavy weight and heavy lifting on the data side. While I think we use RabbitMQ more for asynchronous messaging between mm. different microservices and stuff like that. So I think it really depends, and that's probably you know we're going to probably discuss the next question, Abby. But then it's it's sort of um, uh, uh, <laughs> what what I have experienced is like the platform engineering team struggles with standardization as much as they wish they could i think the different development teams have really different needs and they come with a strong 
choice of platforms and technologies. Um, and I think, oops, like you mentioned at the beginning, the macro architecture uh, sort of needs to go back to the macro architecture and see if there is a real need for introducing a big ass platform like Capcom. Uh, and uh, unless it's, yeah. So I think that's sort of where I think, I feel the standardization will end up anyhow. Um, and yeah, I, I think we, we can standardize only if we have limited use cases or repetitive use cases with the same pattern needs, right? As we go diverse with the business needs, I feel there will be needs also to sort of widen the choice of platforms and probably run multi-platforms as well, right? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it also comes down to when you think when you say this about uh, standardization, I I really uh, agree that, that that's a problem I've seen like uh, many times. Like the platform team or platform engineering comes in, they want to standardize how do you do the CI/CD, how do you want to do the hosting, how the data exchange should happen. But then you have all these different application teams. Uh, uh, they are seeing probably the bottlenecks in a better way than the platform team because they have a more kind of a centralized approach to things uh, across different applications and teams. Uh, but I think uh, the shift or the thought should be rather than enforcing uh, that this is the new kind of uh, technology we come up with. Uh, everybody should use that and creating a plan for all the teams to adopt that. It should be more a self-service layer kind of uh, seeing the developers or dev teams as customers of the platform team in a way. So the platform team have new products, they have new ways of solving stuff. And uh, then there is an option uh, on the other end uh, for the application team, whether they want to kind of use that kind of layer or do not use that kind of layer. And then they will always be thing like some services will be optional. Uh, let's say you spin up a Kafka instance or a message broker. Uh, some services can start using that if they want, They're using the NuGet packages or kind of the shared APIs in order to interact with the message broker. Or it can be some some application team saying that, okay, we, we want to solve this in a different way. Uh, we don't want to use those those kind of services. And then there shouldn't be a enforcement of standardization. There should be a healthy balance. Well, this also comes down to the reason why we, why microservices work really great, right? I mean, not every not everything always fits uh, fits into one use case, right? So where we were with monolithic applications is you ended up having connectors going left, right, and center. You had thirty different connections going from a monolithic application. So you had maybe had five incoming, thirty going out somewhere else. In in worst case scenario, when going down to microservices, I mean those get segregated out they can be handled in a very bespoke way for each microservice. So I think the standardization go, goes a goes a long way, but as you said as well, it need, sometimes standardization doesn't make sense. There will always be outliers. They, they can't always be just that, okay, you have to do it like this type of, of approach to things. I mean, then, then we're missing the point. Developers love bringing new stuff in as well. <laughs> so I guess it's it's a balance, right? So, yeah. Well, each the thing is as well, it's like I, I'm a big proponent, proponent of like not every language solves everything, right? So going into microservices allows us to leverage what we have in Java, to leverage what we have in C Sharp, to leverage what we have in in other, other languages, Kotlin and so as well. 
And I think that we we one of the biggest powers of microservices come in is like we have the option to do things differently, so we can. I mean, if we start removing that, uh, so I, I still think standardization up to a point. If we start standardizing incoming and outgoing and saying, okay, well, you need to use uh, you need to use a queuing system for incoming and outgoing, and you need to use a standard Docker image because obviously there's some security concerns. I think that's great to, to get up to that point. But otherwise than that, then I think the platform teams need to step back a little bit, provide the platform, provide the standards, and then not get too much into the nitty gritty of each and every service. They still need to be able to run that service. The team needs to be able to run that service in which way they see fit, on what language they see fit. Yeah, I mean, then again, if you if you take the take the kind of the strong side of it, like you have this enforcement and standardization and audits and everything, then uh, and you, you you look that up to the topic we are discussing today, making making microservices work at scale, then the scalability also gets challenged in a way because then the teams they always need to follow the same practices. Probably maybe there are some security policies as well, and they are using half of their terms to kind of bypass those security policies in order to do the, what they want to do. So. Uh, like where should the line be is also a, a kind of organizational decision. Uh, what should the platform team, how should they function? What should they provide? And uh, where does the flexibility comes in uh, to make sure that the microservice is actually um, working at scale? Because there will be, like in most organizations, there are kind of business streams and then uh, there are different autonomous teams and the mandate of what an autonomous team should can do should be very clear like what kind of data do they owe and what kind of uh, operations can they do uh, so when they know what kind of microservices can microservices they can create and they have the flexibility to create them there shouldn't be like any uh, platform team kind of uh, restricting them from from making progress because we have taken some choices which is not aligned with them <laughs> But this also gets into business continuity as well. So mm. standardizing these things also means that if you standardize enough, every team can work on all teams' code. But uh, that's going to an nth degree, I think. <laughs> nice. Well, we will move on to our last question now, and it comes from you, Aaron, and you asked how to identify design and continuously re refine architecture patterns for your scalability needs from the perspective that both scalability needs change over time and cloud providers come up with new ways or features of addressing them. So tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah, so I think it's a good continuation from where you left the, the conversation on standardization, right? So I, I think this is a much broader question. I think scaling microservices by itself is probably the easy part, right? I think we have seen enterprises where microservices don't perform uh, alone so you have several enterprise applications SaaS applications on-prem applications it's very rare like you have a hundred percent cloud native architecture i think that's the majority of the organization's challenges right so there is a heavy dependency and i have seen repeatedly that the heavy lifting is offloaded on microservices because everything can be fixed in between to microservices right i think organizations that step into a microservice journey first focuses on building, I would say rather more orchestrating APIs and microservices than business functions uh, or business logic driven APIs and microservices, right? So my question was more 
So how we choose the architecture patterns actually determines the choice of technology uh, overall and, and, and also determines how we can scale not just within the individual services, but also on the client side that may be running Salesforce, SAP, Oracle, whatever, and you have back-end ERP applications that are running heavy, big enterprise applications as well, right? And you are, we are constrained by the scalability both on the client, but also on the server side. That was rather uh, the, the question. Um, so I don't know if you guys have faced similar challenges, but what we have faced is um, we, over the first two years of our journey, we haven't been able to stick to one architecture pattern because obviously every time there is a new use case, there is a need for an additional architecture pattern. There is a need for introducing sometimes new platforms uh, or new tools and technologies that, that sort of addresses a very niche part. And, and a lot of the times it is also because of the limitations, either on the server side or on the client side, we have to sort of put mechanisms in between and and that's become a challenge um, and and sort of uh, you know because the strategy is to you know api first and microservices and so on but we have to work around the limitations uh, of these enterprise applications that comes with it as well and that we have to coexist so i don't know if you, in your experience have you seen um them work you know in different type of um, patterns i guess i mean using it what what I, what i've seen in the past is like scaling these things up abstracting a lot of these things away is is definitely the way to go because there's always a situation of there's always changes right and depending on each system they might consume these things differently as well so what we've done in the past is built up libraries and built small microservices that consume those libraries in order to to scale in in obviously different sections and in different ways so you are using erp solutions so an erp solution might scale differently to one of our internal systems so using the same library but deploying two different microservices to scale to scale instead of trying to all bottle that into one it was one way that we solved it so i mean Abstraction and uh, abstraction and and doing a microservice to handle a specific communication path uh, was one of the ways that we we solved it because otherwise we were doing a lot of code duplication. I, I don't know if that's exactly what, what what you're you're aiming for, but I mean that that's kind of one of the things where I see where I see kind of a bit of a divergent from microservices in the sense of. There's not just one microservice that handles something specific, but rather maybe two or three to, to handle different different paths, but using kind of the same the same logic as well. But that abstraction layer that was added on top of there is is one of the big ways that we could have we could make sure that you know we can scale those differently. And I think uh, adding on top of that, the boundary, which is discussed there in a way, I, I see it as like you have your um, internal services and then you have some contracts like going to probably on-prem systems or the SaaS, uh, SaaS outside uh, and the boundary. Uh, then probably to 
limit the influence of outside systems into uh, the, the into the internal parts of uh, of the boundary is very important like so uh, having those microservices uh, deployed which is handling the communication between the uh, internal set of services to the external service uh, and keep sure that versioning and the contract is kind of intact so uh, basically um what we have done earlier is that uh, we create this contract services basically which was uh, a contract between um between our uh, between uh, us and the the, the the vendor or kind of the third party system that uh, this is how the data exchange will be this is the version of data exchange this is how it should be based on the current requirements and if the requirements change then basically we have to change the contract service bump it up a version and then do kind of uh, uh, adjust it to the new requirements coming in but abstraction in a way that uh, it will never influence the inner circle of the services so uh, it will always affect the contract service it's an architecture uh, it needs to be an architecture decision or architectural implementation in a way that it, it doesn't when when the requirement change it doesn't impact kind of an internal service which again will impact other services so and having the boundary from the beginning and uh, protecting yourself uh, is very important yeah yeah i think we have sort of used the libraries and i think what you just mentioned is is what i think nowadays we see as backend for front end architectures right so we have put the same service running across uh, different and we expose them as unique APIs with some level of configurations um, that are different between them, but still keeping the core essentially the same, right? And that this doesn't affect sort of the, the thing. Um, and and I, I, th I think that there is this aspect of architecture patterns that we have so, sort of seen takes time to build. And, and I think here is the big challenge, right? I think one of the, the, the sales that we do normally with microservices is that it brings the speed and scalability and and performance and, and all sorts of things, right? But then to build up an architecture pattern and to get them to production ready takes months and, and sometimes a year. And then you start adding use cases. I think that journey is quite difficult. And I think here is where the anticipation needs to come into picture, right? So the moment we start speaking about new use cases, I think it's almost like the platform engineering team needs to start thinking about getting into the next level of readiness uh, of a particular pattern. I don't know how you, is you, your organization does it, but it's a big lesson that we have learned that do not wait when you sort of get hinted that you're not going to be able to do that thing because you, you're not ready uh, and and then suddenly there is an expectation from the management oh okay we have this use case and we have about a month time can we get this rolling please and, and then you are not ready <laughs> and that's why i think the, the design patterns and the architecture patterns are so crucial and it's sort of almost so the way i have put it in in, in my organization is that we identify them as technology enablers. We break them, we identify them clearly as an epic. We do not really share like why we are building it, for which use case, we just say like it's it's a depth. We treat it like a depth. So nobody needs to know what it is, but we're actually working towards a future architecture pattern. That's what I called as an evolution of an architecture pattern. That is something maybe existing or maybe perhaps it's completely new. Um, uh, so I don't know how you handle it today uh, in your organizations, but 
be good to get some tips around it as well and pass it on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I can understand what you're saying and uh, been through the same process multiple times, like where you have a futuristic vision of, uh, of, of how things should be and it's changing always, it's dynamic and new features are coming in, new technologies are coming in. Uh, but I think it's also a question of adoption. Like if you have an organization, they are still adopting the current way of doing things because that was an initiative started two years ago, still not in production. Then again, before we reach that there, we start a new kind of uh, pattern and practices uh, start implementing them. Then I don't think that, or maybe the platform team will understand it, but I don't think the organization will understand the pain points and uh, why did we need to go to the new new, new kind of uh, tech and well, what are the current pain points with the current way of doing things. So having enough time for adoption uh, also is important in terms of uh, having the efficiency because when they get used to the current way of uh, doing stuff, whether it's like building the Docker image, deploying it, and uh, working with the troubleshooting in Kubernetes uh, as an application team. And then kind of suddenly we are saying like, okay, we're not going to use Kubernetes now, we are going to do something new. Then uh, all the kind of efficiency we would gain with with having the adoption in place, we, we are losing that uh, because new learning needs to take place because new technology are implemented. So. That's also, there should be a, what we do in our our team is like, we have a roadmap of uh, where we always kind of um, uh, write down interesting things for the future. Uh, but we make sure to not take the discussion as just a platform engineering team. We need to have everybody on board, like a, as an open forum or retrospective discussions where people are addressing and dev teams addressing this, these are our pain points. We are struggling here. We are trying to see if what we have on the roadmap is addressing that problem or not. If it's not, then I feel that platform engineering is solving something else than what the dev teams are actually asking for. Uh, and it should be opposite. The dev team should like adjust some pain points which should be solved in the roadmap of the platform engineering team. But that, that also comes down to how that platform engineering team solves it. I mean, what what we started looking at is obviously using different cloud providers. And at that point in time, you need to start disconnecting teams as much from where they're actually running things. So there might be a high reliance on Lambda functions. So switching from AWS to GCP, that might uh, that might cause a huge problem. Yeah, I, I know there's analog for those things everywhere, but I mean, it, you need to start also making sure that that everybody knows where things are going. Right? It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you just say, okay, well, we're like this now, and we in a year's time we're going to move somewhere else. If you know you're going to move eventually, or you want to go kind of multi multi provider, I mean that's something that needs to be communicated to to dev teams and made sure that they realize what's going on and th this comes down into your scaling as well as they they need to know how these things how these things will probably scale in a more generic way rather than looking at okay aws scales like this uh azure uh, scales like this gcp scales like this it, it's a it's a it becomes a lot more of a conversation then yeah, and it's also one thing which maybe we are not uh, touching into is the vendor lock, uh, because if you're using Azure and you're using a lot of, I don't know, Azure function features, app service features, and very kind of many um, Azure-specific features, and then suddenly you want to become or move your workloads to AWS or GCP, then, then that's a very difficult transition as well, which will add up on the time from doing that shift. So uh, I think Kubernetes is a very good 
like, uh, good technology for hosting, like uh, because it basically gives you this cloud agnostic feature that okay, you are here today and you want to move to a different uh, kind of hosting. Uh, maybe you want to go to Red Hat for uh, having your workloads there. You see any benefits in terms of cost or productivity, and then you're able to do that in a very quick manner. You are able to continuously refine. Uh, refine your architecture or your way of uh, hosting so you are uh, able to fit new scalability needs but i've seen in a lot of cases that if you get very uh, stuck with just azure kind of features than the, uh, the, the platform when you want to go into something new then then that's often a limitation mm. yeah i think what i think just to maybe out of time um what what we have seen quite successful, although there is a lot of resistance, is we use the SRE team as the sparring partner for the platform engineering team to sort of ensure there is uh, always aspects of um, resiliency built alongside scalability as well as we have seen these failures of that that where you have to have the, the microservices or the APIs be resilient towards backend failures. A large system failures and, and database failures and stuff like that, right? Um, so yeah, I think uh, it, that's more or less where, where I was coming from. Uh, architecture patterns, and I would say that we have now a catalog of architecture patterns. So essentially, what we do now is sort of can try to match the use cases to different architecture patterns to see if we can fit into one of them or if we have to start designing something completely new. And that I think is a good practice um, and actually expose these architecture patterns more publicly for all the, the entire organizations, the development team knows as well, that there are choices of doing this and, and, and an example payload and an example use case uh, as well is then shown either in the developer portal or in the documentation itself. And that helps uh, as well. Um, yeah, I think the power of example and um, it's very important. Like uh, you have one service which is following the new new architectural pattern, and then you're not enforcing it again. Talking about standardization, okay, everybody's going to follow this pattern from now on. You just have this as part of your catalog, and then one service is adapting it, and then they are learning learning like what did they gain from it, what was the like problems with it, and then you can uh, you can take a decision in the future if you want to have it in the catalog or not. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think in the end, the, the technology maybe is the same, right? The underlying platforms, the technologies, tools are very likely to be the same while you probably have designed the, the solution completely different with maybe some Delta technologies that are new. I think that's sort of the mindset that we probably have to so, keep. Nice. Um, I guess we will leave the podcast there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I just want to take this opportunity to thank Werner, Yagshit and Aaron for providing your insights into the topic and thank you for the listeners as well. If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at abby.stokes at evolution-nordics.com. See you next time.